When Jesus was on earth, he told a parable, a parable about a man who wanted to grow a field of wheat. He was a farmer. He cleared the field. He prepared it for the seed. He got it all ready. He and his workers went out and they planted wheat seeds in an empty field. Finishing their labor of planting the wheat, they rested. But while they were resting, an enemy slipped in and sowed weeds among the wheat planted weeds throughout the entire wheat field. Well, this was not obvious for the first week or two, but once the wheat began to sprout, it became clear to the workers that there were weeds spread throughout this wheat field. Concerned, they came to the farmer and said, we've got a bunch of weeds in the middle of the field. We didn't plant weeds. Where did these come from? We did such a good job clearing the field. And the farmer says, an enemy did this. He came in at night and he sowed weeds among the wheat. Well, the workers are like, well, should we go around and try to pull up the weeds? And the farmer said, no, if you do, you might damage the wheat. What we're going to do instead is we're going to wait till harvest. And at harvest, we will first go and collect the weeds, gather them together and burn them, and then we will harvest the wheat. Now, it's a sobering parable that Jesus was telling because through it, He was communicating that among God's people, meaning in the church, both the church at large and the local church, we should expect that there would be people here, placed here, not by God, but by Satan. Those who are not actually wheat, but who are here among us at Satan's doing and bidding. Now, this is a sobering thought because, again, like I said, it's not just for the church at large, but it's got to be true of every local church, at least potentially true. This is what Peter's been talking about as we've been looking in the epistle of Second Peter when he talks about false teachers. He says, just like there were false prophets among the people of Israel, so too there will be false teachers among you. And the past two times I've been here to preach with you, we have uh, preached uh, uh, to you, we have been looking at 2 Peter 2, and we've talked about a couple of different aspects of this false teaching. The first was the content of what the false teachers were teaching, and that had a lot to do with sexual immorality. And we went through what does God have to say about uh, sexuality. The second thing that we looked at is is that when there are false teachers among believers, it creates fear. And just like when you look out in a field and you had planted weed and suddenly there are weeds that are there and the weeds could potentially choke out the wheat, one of the responses is, is to be afraid. But we saw a couple of weeks ago that God says, look, I know what I'm doing. I got this under control. I know how to rescue the godly from trials and to hold the unrighteous for judgment. Basically, I know how to make it to harvest day in such a way when we'll actually separate the wheat from the weeds, and in the meantime, I will take good care of you. And it was a word of comfort and an encouragement that even as you see the enemy at work in God's field, we're encouraged to know, God says, look, I've got this under control. I'll take care of you, You take care of being righteous. I will take care of you. Well, this morning we're going to look at the second half of 2 Peter 2. If you're not there yet in your Bible, if you would turn to 2 Peter 2. 
And this morning, we're not focusing so much on what the false teachers are teaching, nor on our response of fear, but really we're focusing more on identifying or recognizing false teachers and what we can learn from the fact that there are weeds among the wheat. Second Peter chapter 2, it's page 984 in the church Bible. Second Peter chapter 2. Now, all of 2 Peter 2 is all one long discussion and one long argument. Now, we've already read the first half of the chapter and spent a couple of sermons looking at it. I'm not going to reread that part. We're going to simply pick it up in verse 10 and read the second half of the chapter. 2 Peter 2, beginning in verse 10. This is especially true of those who follow the corrupt desire of the flesh and despise authority. Bold and arrogant, they are not afraid to heap abuse on celestial beings. Yet even angels, although they are stronger and more powerful, do not heap abuse on such beings when bringing judgment on them from the Lord. But these people, speaking of false teachers, blaspheme in matters they do not understand. They are like unreasoning animals, creatures of instinct, born only to be caught and destroyed. And like animals, they too will perish." They will be paid back with harm for the harm they have done. Their idea of pleasure is to carouse in broad daylight. They are blots and blemishes, reveling in their pleasures while they feast with you. With eyes full of adultery, they never stop sinning. They seduce the unstable. They are experts in greed and a cursed brood. They have left the straight way and wandered off to follow the way of Balaam, the son of Bezer, who loved the wages of wickedness. But he was rebuked for his wrongdoing by a donkey, an animal without speech who spoke with a human voice and restrained the prophet's madness. These people are springs without water and mist driven by a storm. Blackest darkness is reserved for them. For they mouth empty, boastful words. And by appealing to the lustful desires of the flesh, they entice people who are just escaping from those who live in error. They promise them freedom while they themselves are slaves of depravity. For people are slaves to whatever has mastered them. If they have escaped the corruption of the world by knowing our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ and are again entangled in it and are overcome, they are worse off at the end than they were at the beginning. It would have better, been better for them not to have known the way of righteousness than to have known it and then to turn their backs on the sacred command that was passed on to them. Of them, the Proverbs are true. A dog returns to its vomit, and a sow that is washed returns to her wallowing in the mud. Wow. That's a tough passage. That is a hard passage. But this is the word of the Lord, and so this is God's word written for us today. Now, the good thing about this is I'm confident that most of us here, if not all of us, are not false teachers. And so we're not being described by these verses. Thank God for that. But I do think there are three lessons that we can learn from what Peter has to say about false teachers. The first lesson is this. Some people may look like Christians, but they are not believers in Jesus. 
Some people may look like Christians, but they are not believers in Jesus. This past week, we were at family camp with some families from Calvary and some other families. And uh, one of the mission speakers there was from the country of southern Sudan. And he reported that in that country, 98% of people identify themselves as Christians. And so he says, what we have to do is we have to differentiate between Christians and believers. Because not everybody who identifies themselves as Christians are actually believers in Jesus. And when you first hear this passage, it sounds like these false teachers were Christians. It says in verse 13, while they feast with you, he's referring to love feasts that the early church did whenever they celebrated communion. These people were participating in those love feasts. They looked like Christians. Verse 15, they left the straight way, which assumes they were on the straight way. Verse 20, if they have escaped the corruption of the world by knowing our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, verse 21, it would have been better for them not to have known the way of righteousness. To all outward appearance, these people looked like Christians. They were participating in the love feast. They were walking the straight way. They knew about the Lord Jesus Christ, and they knew the way of righteousness. But Peter's point is not, the lesson we're not supposed to take from this, is that some who are Christians can lose their salvation. That's not the point he wants us to take from this. And the reason I know that is because I don't believe these people were ever believers. The point is, some people who look like Christians are not actually believers in Jesus. Now, how do I know that these false teachers were not genuinely Christians? Well, verse 20, if they escaped the corruption of the world by knowing our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Now, that sounds like really positive language. But it's not extremely positive in the sense that when Peter talks about Christians and our knowledge in chapter 1, he uses a different preposition. We are being transformed through our knowledge of Jesus Christ. These false teachers simply know about Jesus Christ. And there's a big, big difference. We have been united with Christ and through that union with Christ, transformation is taking place. These are people who are walking the path and are following the path but have not experienced that intimate, personal knowledge of Jesus. And there is no connection between them and Jesus through which God's grace can come and transform their life. That's why Peter says, by knowing our Lord and Savior. Not their Lord and Savior, our Lord and Savior. And if you backed all the way up to verse two, we didn't read it this morning, but if you look back in chapter two, verse two, they will secretly introduce destructive heresies, even denying the sovereign Lord who bought them. The idea is, is that Jesus, in his death on the cross, paid the price that was necessary to purchase these false teachers from the kingdom of darkness. 
but the transaction has not been completed because they are refusing to acknowledge him as their Lord. So they know about Jesus, but they don't know Jesus. And even though Jesus died for them, they have rejected what he's done for them, denying his lordship in their life. The second reason why I don't believe Peter thinks that these people are Christians is verse 22, a dog returns to its vomit and a pig that is washed returns to her wallowing in the mud. The animals that are used to describe Christians are not dogs or pigs. It's sheep. Now here you have dogs and pigs that look clean. And the idea is that it's very possible for those who are not actual believers in Jesus to come and associate in the church and through social pressure begin to function outwardly like Christians. To gather together in church because this is what we do. We go to church to read our Bible because that's what everybody around us is doing. To pray because this is a prayer meeting and people are praying. But the point is, is that in the case of these people, no transformation of their nature had actually happened. These were simply dogs or pigs that had been cleaned up for a time. Peter talks about when you're a believer in Jesus, you participate in the divine nature, meaning some ontological transformation of who you are takes place, meaning your very nature is being transformed. These are still dogs and pigs. This is what Jesus is referring to when he says, beware of wolves in sheep's clothing. He doesn't say beware of wolves who become sheep who are then transformed back into wolves. They were wolves the entire time, but they looked like sheep. That was what's going on here. This is what 1 John is talking about in 1 John chapter 2. Dear children, this is the last hour. And as you have heard that the Antichrist is coming, even now many Antichrists have come. This is how we know it's the last hour. They went out from us, but they did not really belong to us. For if they had belonged to us, they would have remained with us. But their going showed that none of them belonged to us. Jesus, Peter, John are all saying the same thing. It is possible for people to look like a Christian outwardly, but to not actually be genuinely a believer in Jesus. This is a very real phenomenon that Jesus, Peter, and John are all telling us about. Now, Peter's reason for telling us this is not so that we can go on a witch hunt and try to figure out who's a Christian and who's not. That's not ultimately our job. That's God's job. Peter's point is the command he gave us in chapter 1. Make every effort to add to your faith goodness, to goodness knowledge, to knowledge self-control, to self-control perseverance, to perseverance godliness, to godliness mutual affection, to mutual affection love. For if these qualities be in you in increasing measure, they guarantee that your calling and election are sure. Peter's saying the application is not for us to look around at everybody else, but to look at ourselves and to say, just because I have the external trappings of being a Christian doesn't mean that my nature is being changed. But 
If I am pursuing these divine qualities and I'm seeing them appear in my life in ever-increasing measure, then I have absolute assurance and confidence that the Spirit is in me. It doesn't mean that you're perfect. It doesn't mean that it's just straight up. There's some ups and downs along the way. But as you look back and you say, but I do feel like I'm growing. I feel like I'm growing in knowledge. I feel like I'm growing in self-control. I feel God working perseverance in me. Peter says, that's why you want to go after that stuff. That's why you want to pursue that stuff. Because it's very real possibility that we have the external trappings of Christianity, but no genuine relationship with God. And the only way to know, because you can't look at external stuff. The only way to know is something happening inside. And that can't be faked. And so Peter says, "Make every go after that stuff. Because if it's in your life, it makes your calling and election sure. So the first lesson is that some people may look like Christians, but are not genuinely believers in Jesus. The second lesson I think Peter wants us to take from what he has to say about false teachers is beware of pride. I told you a couple months ago on my study break that I had the opportunity to spend uh, a good amount of time uh, studying and writing a paper on pride and humility. And through those studies, I was reminded again and probably in a new and deeper way just how dangerous, just how pervasive, just how deceptive, just how all-ever-present pride really is. That pride is the reason why Satan was cast out of heaven. Pride is the sin that Adam and Eve fell to. Pride is the thing that Satan chooses to tempt Jesus with. It's the, it, Satan thinks he's got his best chance of getting Jesus to fall using pride. And pride is the root behind all our sins. Now the Bible defines pride much more broadly than just arrogance. But arrogance is one very real manifestation of pride. And in verse 10, as Peter is introducing these false teachers, he says, this is especially true of those who follow the corrupt desire of flesh and despise authority. Bold and arrogant. This is at the root of who they are. And Peter's point is, beware of pride, especially in those who are leaders in God's kingdom. Especially of those who aspire to leadership in God's kingdom. All the, all the rest of the stuff that happens in 2 Peter 2, the heaping abuse on angels, meaning speaking poorly or degradingly of celestial beings, the greed, the despising authority, the sexual immorality, it all flows out of pride. Pride is the root that inspires all the rest of that activity. And what Peter is trying to say is, look, if you've got a leader in God's kingdom, you've got a pastor of a church, you've got somebody who's leading a small group, you've got somebody involved in a parachurch ministry, and that person is constantly bad-mouthing other leaders, constantly tearing down other people in positions of authority, whether in the church or outside the church, beware, Peter says, Beware, that's a sign of pride at work, despising authority and heaping abuse on others. He said, look, even angels don't talk like this. They have every right to tear people down, but they don't do this. If you have a leader in God's kingdom who's charging money for things that really ought to be free or at least should be sold at cost, 
That's a sure sign that pride is at work. And Peter says, beware, it's manifesting itself in greed. If you have a leader in God's kingdom who refuses to submit to authority, either the elders that are over that person or the biblical authority that God has given us or people in positions of authority over them, they refuse to submit. Peter says, beware, beware. If you have leaders in God's kingdom or people who are claiming to be leaders in God's kingdom but are promoting a different sexual ethic than the one that God has given us in his word, Peter says, beware. Watch out. This is the sign that pride is driving this. If you've got a leader in God's kingdom or someone who is trying to, attempting to be a leader in God's kingdom, but what they preach or what they teach or what they talk about or what they do is all about themselves, if they're the subject of all of the sentences, if they're the focus of what's going on, Peter says, beware. Now listen, nobody's perfect. We all struggle with pride. But how you identify a false teacher, this is the single distinguishing feature. It's pride. Pride is at the root of it. Pride is what leads to greed. Pride is what leads uh, to uh, heaping abuse on other people. Pride is what leads to despising authority, to sexual immorality. And Peter's saying, look, if you see that stuff going on, recognize what you're dealing with here. They may look like Christians on the outside. They may have all of the trappings. They may preach the best sermons you've ever heard. But they don't know Jesus. I was meeting with some elders from a church here in the West Michigan area. It's about nine months ago. They were in a very difficult situation. Their senior pastor had left, taken half the church and all the staff with him. It was a pastor who had planted the church and these elders had no idea how you ever went about finding a senior pastor. They had never done anything like that before. They were hurt. They were confused. They didn't know what to do. And God connected them to Calvary and told us, help this church. Help this church. So we said, hey, look, how can we help? And the elder said, we'd just like to, we'd like to pick your brain and just talk to you. How do you even go through this process? What do you even do here? So we met together and as we were talking, one of the questions that came up was, what should we be looking for in a senior pastor? Like, what, is the, what are the most important things that we should be asking God for? And I said, far above anything else, what you want is humility and the fear of the Lord. If you have someone who is humble and fears the Lord, you're going to be in great. Because God can teach that person to preach. God can teach that person to share the gospel. God can give that person a vision for the future. But if you've got somebody who's proud, they're not going to listen. They're not going to listen to what God is up to. I said, look, what you want more than anything in the world is humility. That's what you want. Pride leads to all the rest of the stuff. You're worried about a pastor who's going to go into sexual immorality. You're worried about a pastor that's going to go into greed or embezzlement or those kinds of things. You're worried about a pastor that's going to constantly be tearing down everybody else. You worry about a pastor that's not going to submit to your authority as elders. The only way to find is if you have somebody who's got pride, all that stuff's coming. It may not come right away, but it will show up. But you have a person who's humble, who fears the Lord, then you're safe. Then you're safe because that's the character trait that only Jesus can give. And when humility is present, 
God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. So the second lesson from these false teachers is beware of pride. Whether you're a leader or not a leader, beware of pride. Beware of it in your own life. Beware of it in the lives of others who are leading or teaching. You may think, this is a great person. I'm so, that, this, I want to follow this person. Beware of pride. If there's pride, stay away. If there's humility, listen to whatever it is they're telling you to do. Which leads to the third lesson I think Peter wants us to get out of this teaching. And that is, we get to rejoice when God raises up good teachers and good leaders. When you see the destruction that false teaching wreaks on people, the way in which it destroys lives, it leads people into deception and confusion. When you listen to what Peter is describing here, people who are consciously deceiving other people, who are leading them astray, who are leading them into destruction, when you hear that and then you see someone who is a teacher after God's own heart, when you see God raise up like he promised shepherds after his own heart, we rejoice. We thank God. We thank God for those who are in positions of authority or leadership that God has raised up who are genuine believers in Jesus. Even when they come from your own church and they're on your staff and you desperately don't want them to leave. The church I told you about that we met with nine months ago was Wellspring Church in Hudsonville. And as I sat there and told them, what you want more than anything else is humility and the fear of the Lord. It wasn't very long till God led them to our executive pastor, Steve Gibson, and to tell you the truth, I'm not that surprised. Because if you're looking for external stuff, you might have found Steve, you might not have. But if you're looking for godliness, if you're looking for humility, if you're looking for the fear of the Lord, it wasn't going to be long until God was going to lead them to him. Steve and I have been friends for 12 years before we started working together here. We've worked together for eight and a half years. If I had my way, we would work together until the day we both retire on the same day and then just sit off on the beach somewhere and tell stories about all you crazy people. (laughs) Just kidding. I'm just kidding. He's the one that thinks you're crazy. I love you. (laughs) But when God raises up a godly teacher, you can't help but rejoice. And when God made it clear that we had somebody on our church who could be a blessing to the wider kingdom, who really did fit none of these characteristics but fit humility, and the fear of the Lord. And as you heard last week, if you hear the very clear story that God was calling him to do this, which by the way, they voted to accept him as their pastor. I don't know if he told you that or not, but. But after that story last week, nobody's surprised. I'm not surprised. God was clearly in it. But as much as selfishly, I would not want this to happen. I am actually rejoicing because when you see the damage that a false teacher does, 
And then you see God raise up a shepherd after his own heart. He can't help but be glad. And God's reminded us, he must increase and Calvary Church must decrease. And so it's actually with joy that this morning we have the opportunity to commission Steve and his family for this work that God is calling them to do. And we're commissioning them to go in humility and in the fear of the Lord. And they're going with our blessing. This is not what I would have chosen, humanly speaking. But this is what God has chosen, and it's a good thing. It's a good thing, because when God gives a flock a shepherd after his own heart, there's no better thing in the world. So I'm going to ask Steve and Kathy and their children if they would come up here on the platform, along with the elders of the church, and we are going to pray over them, and we're going to commit them to the Lord's care and keeping. Uh, We want to thank God. Uh, Steve's one of the reasons why, one of the main reasons why God has blessed Calvary in such a great way. God loves humility, and Steve's got it in spades. And you see me a lot. I'm up front. He's been behind the scenes with a great fear of the Lord and an incredibly humble attitude, and God has blessed that in amazing, amazing ways. And all we're going to ask God to do is to continue to work in and through Steve in even greater ways than he's been at work here at Calvary. So I'm going to ask Kent Snewink, who's one of our elders, to pray over Steve, and then I'm going to pray over him as well. Father, we have come into your house and gathered in your name to worship you. And part of worshiping you this morning means celebrating what you have done and what you are doing and will continue to do in the life of Steve Gibson and Kathy and their kids. We praise you for each one of them. Thank you for the way you've gifted Steve. Thank you for Kathy and for Grace and Annie, for Mary and Isaac. We love them. We cherish them. And as we pray this morning, Lord, we feel like parents who would love to hang on to these children and not let them go. But as Peter mentioned, we get to rejoice in good teachers. You have blessed this place with great teachers, people who love you, who teach your word, who model their lives after you, Jesus, the ultimate teacher. And Steve is one of those, Lord. So as much as we'd like to hoard our good teachers, we willingly give them up because this is a hurting world that needs you. There are people hurting at Wellspring and in the Hudsonville community who need the giftedness that you've given Steve and need to see the modeling of a man who loves Jesus and pursues him with his whole heart. Father, each one of these Gibsons have been called away. Uh, It was obvious last Sunday how you've called Steve, but it's neat to know that you've called each one of them uniquely. So we praise you for that. And we know that as you've called them, you will equip them. You promised to do so. You've promised that whoever leaves home and wife and parents and children will be given much more in this life and in the end, eternal life. So we claim that for them, Lord. We claim every promise in your word for them. As much as we'd love to keep them here, we give them to you willingly and lovingly, knowing that you care for them even more than we do. So Father, we praise you today. And as Steve ended his prayer last Sunday, we simply say, we love you, we love you, we love you. We commit them to you. In Jesus' name, amen. Lord, you have told us that unless a seed falls to the ground and dies, it remains alone. And so God is uh, with sad hearts from a human point of view. Uh, We have to say goodbye to uh, a fantastic family. Uh, Lord God, an amazing executive pastor. Uh, And Lord, a good friend. Uh, Lord, we know that 
by allowing this seed to fall to the ground that you can resurrect something even greater. And God, I pray that the seed that you will plant uh, through the Gibsons in Hudsonville, God, that you would grow a harvest there so great and so big, uh, Lord God, that only you would receive the glory for it. God, I pray for Steve and Kathy and for their children. I pray, Lord, that this uh, incredible attitude of humility and grace that you have given to them, that they would stay in that and walk that path. Uh, Lord God, that you have raised them up and called them. Uh, Lord God, because you see in Steve a man after your own heart. And so, God, I pray that you would keep him close to you. Lord God, I pray that as he walks into this position, Lord God, that you have called him to, that you would be his strength. I pray, Lord, that you would be the Lord who takes hold of his right hand, who says to him, do not be afraid, I am with you. I pray that you would be the God who, even to his old age and gray hairs, would be the one who sustains him. For you have created him, you have called him, you sustain him, and you will rescue him. And God, I pray uh, over them, and I pray, God, that you would do such great and mighty things through them that even though the sadness of them leaving, it would be replaced by the joy of watching Jesus increase more and more. And God, I do, I thank you for eight and a half great years. I thank you, Lord God, uh, for such a fabulous friend to be able to to do ministry at Calvary here with, Lord God, but I'm willingly uh, yield this to you and to say, not my will, but yours be done. And so God, uh, I am, I'm like the the best man rejoicing at a wedding. And God, as I see you take Steve and his family and send them off to such great and amazing things, Lord God, I'm rejoicing for you and I'm rejoicing for them. And I'm glad for us, too, that we even got to be a part of this story for a little while. And so, Lord, I just pray your blessing on them. I pray protection from the evil one. Lord, I pray that Steve would listen to your voice and that you would speak loudly and clearly to you, to him as you have in calling him to this position. Lord God, I pray for uh, all of their children. I pray for grace. Lord God, I pray that you would bless her as she goes into the youth group there. Uh, Lord, thank you for what a a blessing she's been and a light she is. Lord, I pray for Annie. Uh, Lord, it's been so fun to watch how you've used her in amazing ways. Lord, uh, the way you've gifted her, uh, God, even to be on missions trips and be a translator. And Lord, for Mary and how you have used her, uh, Lord God, even as a friend to my own daughter. And God, I praise you for that and for Isaac. And what a blessing he is, Lord God, a gift from you, specially given to this family. And Lord, I pray uh, for Kathy, uh, who is an amazing helpmate and a good friend. And I pray, God, that Steve and Kathy and their family would go in the power of the Holy Spirit. In the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen.